Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. First off, I'd like to give a huge thank you to all of my patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. Big thanks to Callum, Matthew, Jay, Paul, Tavernot, Carol, Benjamin, Fernando, Justin, Matt, and Joaquin. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my link tree or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. Remember that 10% of my ad and patron money goes to support local LGBTQ plus youth via Encircle. Check out my link tree for more information. Some exciting news for me, my very first Kickstarter project is live. It's called Too Hot One Shot. You probably heard about me harping on it a little bit here, and that's because I want you all to know about it and support it if you feel like you want to. Too Hot One Shot combines our love of spicy food and the Hot Ones interview show with adventure in Dungeons and Dragons. And so we created this very cool one shot for fifth level characters that will really turn the heat up on your next game night. We set our goal very low at $1,000 to cover our costs, our investment into our art and everything like that, and then to help start funding our next project, whatever we decide to work on. So very low goal, but we've got some cool stretch goals, which will be mostly custom art that we'll commission to add to the book just so that it looks that much better. We have cool tiers for VTT maps and tokens for a custom t-shirt that we had designed that you can wear with pride and even our top level where you can get an NPC of yours or a PC of yours added as an easter egg in the game. So we put a ton of work into this, we know that you're going to love it and even if you're not super interested in it, if you'd throw a dollar or two our way it would mean a lot and we'd super appreciate it. One thing to note, if your game system of choice is not 5e, then this game will work well for games that just use any kind of dice rolling mechanic to see whether or not you succeed or fail at any action, which is most TTRPGs. So if you're not into buying the one shot that has all the homebrew monsters and enemies and that kind of thing, you can buy the basic rules and still use those for whatever other kind of game you play and still have a ton of fun with it. So we'd really appreciate it. If you want to check it out, the link will be in my episode notes, in my link tree, or you know, you can see me yelling about it on Twitter constantly, I'm sure. That's too hot one shot on Kickstarter. Thanks a ton for your support. Okay, now let's get to this week's guest announcement. Anthony Joyce Rivera is a talented and prolific game designer with over 25 design credits to his name, including work for MCDM's Arcadia. His projects and work are well-known and respected throughout the community. Enjoy! All right. Well, hey, Derek, thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm Anthony Joyce Rivera. I'm on Twitter at ajoyce underscore Rivera. And I am a D&D designer, a DM, and in my real job, I'm an Army strategist, uh, active duty here at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Beautiful place. I love everything D&D because I discovered it when I was deployed as a company commander, I was uh, it was 2015, and President Obama had come on the TV in December of 2014 and said, "Hey, we're sending troops into Iraq again for the second time to get rid of ISIS." And then I got the phone call like right after he was on TV, and I was watching it, and it was my commander. He's like, "Hey, your unit's going to Iraq. You have 50 days to get there." And I was like, "Oh crap! You know that's uh, a big deal." So when I was deploying. I'm a big proponent and believer like in keeping morale high, 
regardless of what environment you're in, because, you know, you, you got to keep spirits high when you're in these tough situations. And so D&D 5th edition just come out and uh, I saw it at the bookstore. And I'm like, well, if I'm in an austere environment like these books, I had known about D&D as a kid growing up. I never was able to play because I didn't have like friends that played Dungeons and Dragons. So I just never played it. But I, I played EverQuest and role playing games like Diablo and Warcraft. So I knew about the genre. I decided I'm like, hey, I'm going to buy the core books and I'm going to take them with me. And there was a specialist in my unit who had played third edition. He's like, hey, sir, because I brought up that I got DNA. He's like, hey, sir, uh, you get those books and, and we'll go to the desert. And when we go there, we can play and some of the soldiers, we can all get together and play. So I'm like, all right, yeah, sweet. You could be the dungeon master. You could teach me how to play. And when we deployed every Sunday, me and some of the other soldiers, like me, a lieutenant, some NCOs and some soldiers, junior enlisted, we all played D&D together. And it was like super awesome. And I learned in the deserts uh, there, we were between Kuwait and Iraq. That's where I discovered Dungeons and Dragons and I fell in love with it. So what I liked about it was it's different than video games. Like I love video games. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But disconnecting yeah. and being around people and having like the facial expressions and the social bonding and connections through a story. And then, you know, we're at the DFAC and we're like, oh, next week we're going to go into the sewers and we're going to, you know, find the bad guys hideout. It was just like it was being <laughs> part of like a movie or like a TV series. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. What's the next episode going to be? Except we're writing the script. So I really love that. And, and soon afterwards, when I got home from my deployment, I took on the role of DM and I maintained a group through virtual tabletop. So like roll 20. Uh, I used a lot and I was able to continue playing D&D that way. So I thought that was really cool. And from DM, I went from there and now I'm designing. So I, it's like an evolution from player to DM to designer. Did you buy uh, other stuff other than the books, you know, like dice and, and that kind of stuff? Or, or uh, did other people kind of handle that? Yeah, no, I had a little uh, dice set, I think, that I bought with the books, just a basic one. And when I went, uh, he had brought... <laughs> He had his mom mail him uh, <laughs> like a box of miniatures to the desert. So like this box came in with all these old like third edition and 3.5 edition like minis. And so we used those to play and he had like, his battle map and he had a lot of stuff as a DM. I'll give him credit for that. So I was able to use little figurines from there. Yeah, perfect. Do you remember drinking little boxed milks? Did they have those when you're in the desert? Yeah, 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 yeah. At the defect there. You have these little box milks. They had these little like knockoff energy drinks called like Rippets they would oh, give geez. you. So there's like pallets of water bottles all over the bases over there. So you don't get yeah. dehydrated. But imagine like you're super thirsty. It's 130 degrees outside. And all the nearest thing is a pallet of bottled water that's been out in it's that just heat. Sitting outside, <laughs> it's yeah. just like boiling. You're like, I, I need a drink, but it's burning my throat. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, it doesn't sound very refreshing. I only ask because near my college, in my college town, was one of the factories that made the milks that they would send over. So oh, I, yeah. I just I knew that that yeah. was the thing. Cool. That sounds like a ton of fun and a great way to kind of build camaraderie and and like you said, like escape from the 130 degree desert that that you were in uh, mm -hmm. for a little bit. I learned to play mostly like at work during lunchtime. So different setting, but kind of the same idea, you know, people that I worked with. Interesting to have that kind of playing games relationship with them too. So, all right. So you've been running games for a while now then, you know, you learned from one of your fellow soldiers. 
I'd love to know in the process of kind of running games, what are some of the mistakes you've noticed that you make, either big ones or small ones? What lessons did you learn from the mistakes that you've made that kind of have improved the way you run your games? When I first started DMing, I remember I um, run a lot of games online, but I also was running games in a game store. So I had PCS from uh, Savannah, Georgia to the colds of Minnesota. So I go from like the deserts of Iraq and Kuwait to Minnesota, the tundra, right? It was just, it was wild. And I'm from Miami, <laughs> Florida. So yeah, I'm oh, not used really? to the cold at all. Yeah. So I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And it, just this caveat, I had just ordered a convertible Mustang, like <laughs> oh, no. on my deployment. Cause I'm thinking I'm in Savannah. It's great. And then I find out I get these orders. So I, I had to change the whole order. Anyway, I didn't get the convertible. But in, in Minnesota, I went to a local gaming store and I ran Adventures League there. And I learned mm. a very important lesson as a DM. And that was, I was running things like rules is written by the book. And it created a problem because we were running out of the abyss. And with this group of players that I had, for a plethora of reasons, they just, you know, not optimized player characters or not well experienced players themselves. They were dying a lot. I didn't really understand what was going on. I'm like, well, the book, the book says there's an encounter here with these five drow. What's going on? And I would run the encounter and they would all die. And it was like, it was happening multiple times. Now I was lenient and like, you know, Hey, you guys get resurrected somehow and, and you're back in the game, but right. it was happening like consistently. And it was just like, not fun. That moment taught me that as a DM, sometimes you're going to get a module that's just not balanced for the group you're playing with. And, you know, if things like that happen where there's a TPK every session or players are dying a lot, it's okay for you to like adjust the encounter. Cause I felt, you know, coming from the military, it's like very rigid. It's like, okay, well, these are the rules and this is what it says. So I'm the, so I had to realize like, Hey, there is an art and science to D and D. And part of the art is learning like where to bend the rules and like lower the hit points or lower the lethality of different encounters to accommodate the specific group of players at your table. And so when I learned that lesson, it helped me to be a much better DM and to bring, you know, much better joy to my table versus like scratching my head like, hey, I ran it. I'm sorry, you know, you died again. So, yeah. <laughs> I haven't ever played Out of the Abyss or like run it myself. So I'm not super familiar with it, but that does sound like something like it would be frustrating, right? Because you're just telling them I've done exactly what it says here and something's not working, right? So yeah, you could definitely see like, especially if it's one of the first games you're running for an extended period of time, how it'd be hard to to face. But what did you end up doing in that situation? I just got to really understand when you look at like a creature and it has like, you know, 100 hit points, parentheses, 10 D8 plus whatever. I started realizing like, hey, let me use that as just the spectrum, the uh, calculation. So if you do the calculation on that hit die, you realize like the hit points for a 100 hit point creature could be really low at the low end. It could be like, you know, 30 or 40, all the way up to like 200. So right. I just started saying like, hey, if you surpass the uh, minimum threshold of a monster, after that, I will, at the appropriate time where it's narratively fun and exciting, the creature will just like die. So once I started doing that, I was creating like these cinematic moments where, you know, the crit brings down the monster versus like, oh, it has one hit point left. And then you got to, the wizard hits it with his staff boop, and, and kills it. It was becoming cinematic. It was becoming more fluid and engaging. And that way you're still within the bounds of the CR of the creature. And you're still running everything technically, you know, rules is written and all that jazz. You're just using that calculation spectrum to your benefit as a DM. So 
that was all it took. And it, and it really made a big difference because you could really beef up encounters just with that change, or you could really minimize the, the lethality of an encounter with that as well. Yeah. Mike Shea, he goes by Sly Flourish, talks about oh, like yeah. dials and having the dials that you can change during combat. And that's very much kind of the same idea. I'm in the middle of working on something with my friend. We're kind of writing a one shot and, and I'm going to include the minimum and maximum hit points like in line with the monster stats for this exact reason. I feel like I do it all the time and I know a lot of people do. And even if if you don't, you know, I don't know. It just I feel like it's it's a, a good guideline to have so that you can adjust things as necessary. Yeah, and that's and that's something that you bring that up that you're doing that. That's something with uh one D D actually that's coming mm. about. I have, you know, my friend, my good friend Justice, who's a senior designer at Wizards of the Coast. We we talk a lot about D D and Mike Shea. I talk to him a lot. And yeah. uh one of the things like I would love to see in like the next iteration of uh, evolution of D and D would be in the creature stat block itself to do exactly what you said for the DM, like put the minimum threshold and the maximum. So that way on the fly, you can easily adjust to that type of thing. And it makes it that much easier because there's a lot of space in the stat blocks. Like a lot of dead space. So you could have the calculation yeah. still, and then just put the minimum and maximum there to be like, okay, cool. There's the math. Boom. Good to go. Cause I think that'll help DMS everywhere. For sure. And I feel like it replicates reality in that, there's tons of different, for example, I don't know, what's a good real world example? There's a lot of soldiers, but we're right. all different. Yeah. Yes, you know? yes, sure. There you go. Uh, you know, all of you are not going to have tens in every stat, right? Yeah. Like there's going to be people who are stronger or, and people who yes. are faster and people who are this and that, just like there are animals. And just like in this fantasy world, you're making up with your friends around the table. There could be lots of different monsters who are bigger or smaller, and it's good to kind of make it that way. Do you have any uh, really favorite memories from fun moments that you've had at your table, improv, combat, role-playing, you know, really emotional moments, stuff like that? Yeah, there's been some like just funny times as a DM where you're left like scratching your head and kind of laughing. And I remember I'm running Tomb of the Annihilation and there is this like side quest encounter where you go into this like lava volcano and there's a like, dragon in there and underneath there's these like lizards in this like little uh kind of like a forge that they work in and there's a flowing river of lava there and these lizard creatures are very weak i don't know cr half something super simple to kill and my players who were pretty robust level at the time for whatever reason they got afraid of these little i think they're like fire newts is what they were they got afraid of these fire newts so when the fire newts came out of their little forge my players shot a grappling hook across the uh, lava river and tried to do like an escape. And as they're escaping, one of the characters, he falls into the lava and he's melting. And then all the characters try to save him. And then another one falls in the lava. And so they're all falling in the lava uh, melting. And I'm like, what? I'm like, if you literally hit these fire dudes, like one time they have like five hit points, they're going to die. It was just hilarious to watch. I'm trying to give all the signs like, you know, the fire newts look really weak or whatever. And they just they didn't buy what I was saying. And uh, one of the characters ended up, you know, Anakin Skywalker style or no Terminator style, like thumbs up dying in the lava. And, yeah. And um, it was just funny for me to see like how players don't know what they don't know. So sometimes even like a high level character might be afraid of something really weak because they are intimidated maybe by the numbers of of these creatures. And, and then at least kind of like, funny situations like that like a monty python skit like here are these yeah. brave warriors running away from little fire newts and then like you know end up dying in the lava and it's just like oh my gosh but uh <laughs> but yeah just having fun having fun with that and and then um i think the lesson is always like know your players in the group like 
some games are going to be really gritty. If you die, you die, and that's it. And I get that. That's cool. Let's respect that. Uh, and then there's some that's like, hey, I think it's cool if you die, and then you, you kind of like bring them back. You know, like I think that's cool too. So just knowing like what your table wants to have as terms of play is very important because then it can alleviate a lot of stress from the player in the DM if you know that going in. So like example, as a DM, what I know like at my tables when we play death, it could be a narratively big deal, but like we're still going to play. I'm not going to ban you from the table if you're dead. And in that situation, I can let these kind of funny things play out like the person dying in the lava because I I know and they know that that's not the end of the story for them. It's just kind of like a funny episode in a sitcom and then Next time they come back like they do in any other sitcom. Oh, I thought you were dead. Oh, I'm here. You know, the, the laughter goes off or whatnot. And it helps alleviate that tension. So something to consider is just making sure you understand going in. I like it. I like it a lot. Do you have a favorite monster or encounter you've used in your games? Or in your case, do you have one that you've written that you really kind of fell in love with? That's just super fun. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I have my... First ever adventure that I wrote, the Air of Orcus, first one. It's like my favorite encounter because this adventure is an Adventures League module and it gets played a lot at conventions and stores, but also like people play it in streams and stuff on YouTube. And then there's a lot of stories about this specific encounter. But anyway, the gist is this when I designed it, my design style is I like to kind of sometimes put like very obvious situations in front of people. And I realized as a designer going into this that players, when they're playing the game, they're used to certain tropes and they latch onto these tropes and it's very hard for them to break the bias that that trope has on their mind. And I'll give you an example in this encounter. So in Adventures League or in D&D, when you get a quest, you're working for the good guys, right? You're always working for the good guys. You get a quest, you work for the good guys, and then you go on your quest. Okay, so this adventure... You start off with the quest giver, you, you know, he hires you and he's taking you to like the, uh, this mansion to meet the people who are hiring you, but you're working for the bad guys. You don't know it. It's just like, they gave you a contract. These people run an orphanage as like a cover. So they appear to be good and you're on your way. And then these holy knights of tear, like stop this caravan that you're on and they pull the driver out who is a, a servant of these people and they worship devils that the servant does. And the knights are like, I uh, had this really obnoxious knight, like lawful good on steroids. Like, stop there now. My name is Sir Titus, you evil doer. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I shall push you to death, you devil worshiper. And, and every time the players see that, they immediately like go to kill this guy. It's like they can't calculate that they're somehow maybe working for actual devil worshippers. And I also made him kind of like tropey obnoxious. So right. like... I think that in and of itself makes people hate him. <laughs> so I have all these characters around the world that kill these Knights of Tear. Like they just slaughter them. And they're like, okay, you know, when they die, like you, the emblems actually fall out. So you're like, oh crap, this is really a Knight of Tear. And then you get to the house and then to make it like even worse, it's like obvious that these people worship Zeriel. It's like big oil paintings of Zeriel on the wall. And it's like unabashed. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh crap. And a lot of people go along because they feel awkward. <laughs> they murder these people. It's, it's just very funny psychologically to see like how people respond in a situation. Because, you know, what do you do now? Do you just like kill these people too? And then you just, you're murdering everybody at that point. So I love that encounter because it's funny. And um, 
you'll always see like the one player who is smart and they'll be like, I think this is really a, a holy night of tears. And I think that this caravan driver, like all the boils on their face might literally be a devil worshiper. And then, you know, when it goes down and they get to the house, they're always like, I told you so. You see, you should have listened to me. But uh, but yeah, I like that. I like that encounter a lot. <laughs> that is fun. <laughs> uh, I love hiding um, good characters behind too much righteous fervor because exactly the same reason. Like I had my characters run into this group of religious pilgrims who were heading to a place. And like just the way they spoke and stuff, you know, like just drove my players <laughs> nuts. Like, oh, I can't stand them. They're so into their religion. They've got to be a cult, right? They've got to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, you find out later that they're actually not that bad. And yeah. I don't know. It's just so funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love it's it. Funny. All right. Have you ever had a moment where players or a player just totally ruined your plans, threw a wrench in the works, destroyed something you carefully constructed? And then how did you go about addressing it? As a DM, that can be a hard pill to swallow, but ultimately at the end of the day, you want to reward players for ingenuity. Uh, and, yes. and if it leads to fun and memorable experience, like embrace that. And your personal plan may have been ruined, but you're here to facilitate a fun session for everyone. And if that makes it fun, then so be it. Uh, so I ran to Move Annihilation, like I said before. But I ran that whole hardcover with that group. And then we went even further. We went all the way to level 20. So we like continued the campaign post hardcover. So at the last session, I believe it was they're in Baldur's Gate, defending Baldur's Gate. And like Aserak has returned. He's on a vengeance. He's coming back with like all the monsters to just crush this party. And they're level 20. And before we begin this the final fight one of my players casts oh, i forget i think it's like sanctify or something it's a spell that like it makes a one square mile area like you know it's a clear spell yeah. yeah yeah and they did it to be there's like something where it gives them advantage on a check or something so they did it for like that purpose it wasn't to to screw anything over it's one of the high-end spells where it does a huge radius and it takes like an hour or something to cast and i'm like yeah you can do this before the battle and but there's a part in it says that if like like you can't teleport there or something like like that yep. stops you. Yeah. But we didn't we didn't consider this. So anyways, in this big fight, the big bad ends up like they kill all the monsters. They kill a Serac, and then I had a Taras come, and this big Taras is the final fight, and they're fighting it. And he did something where he like banishes the Tarask. and I'm like, okay, well next turn the Taras is just gonna come back, and we we were going to do that. And then he's like, wait, wait, I think I cast that spell. And I'm like, Oh, you did. And we go to read it. And it's like, creatures can't reappear. Like there's something where they cannot be summoned there again or something like that. And so because this creature got banished, it couldn't come back. But then this spell says, if you do a ritual for like an, a day for like 24 hours or a week or something, it becomes permanent. So since it's the last thing, he's like, I start doing this ritual for like a whole day, you know, and just sitting there, doing this thing and he did and the the land was like permanently you know made sacred and the terrace couldn't come back and it was just like for me as a damn i'm like <laughs> i got one round out of this terrace no like my plans or whatever and then um but i had to give him credit like hey that was fun it was kind of like inner like all the players like cheering and they're like ah it's the smartest thing ever and they're like celebrating they did this thing and i was like looking around the room and they were having fun and they were laughing and they like tell that story all over again about how they, you know, 
banished the Tarask and they couldn't come back. And to me, that's success. Like that was memorable and exciting for them. And it was good for me. Like I enjoyed it. Once I put aside like, oh man, I that I lost the Tarask. Like that was kind of lame, you know, that it got, you know, defeated that way. I was happy because I saw like at the end of the day, I couldn't make them laugh like that, but this is what we did together as a group. And so that was success to me. Totally. Those are the best moments. That is unfortunate that you only got one round. Though. It <laughs> sounds like you'll have to bring it back sometime. Yeah. 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 What do you feel like makes an ideal D&D player? And you can be specific like for your table or you can be broad and, and just talk about what things you like uh, in general. Yeah, I think the ideal D&D player is someone who recognizes that this is a group game, a collaborative effort, and you want to help make others shine and memorable moments, not only for yourself, but for everyone around the table. And if everybody like comes to the table with that mindset, you're going to get your own satisfaction of the motivations of your character and the story arcs. But if you also give and everybody's giving, then everybody's going to get that as well. So I think like it is just being very open with sharing the spotlight because D&D has a theatrical element to it. And it's very easy for you to be an outgoing, charismatic person and be around the table with a bunch of introverts who aren't doing much. And you might assert yourself, rightfully so. Like I get very, I, I can't stand like awkward silence or pauses. So I'll always say something. But I, I have to know when I'm playing D&D, like if I do that, a lot of times the players may not say anything and they'll let me drive just the story doing going forward, asserting myself over and over. But that's not maybe fun for everyone. And sometimes you have to turn and say, well, what do you think to the other player next to you who's maybe more quiet and say, you know, I ask so-and-so how we should proceed. And that way you bring them in. And even if you're not, this is, again, for if you're not the DM, I'm talking about like if you're a player, when the DM asks you, what do you do? Say, you know, I don't know. What should we do? And like get that other player involved so that you can have some inter-party role play or if they don't want to do the theatrical thing, like just talking about a plan to involve them, I think makes the game richer, more fulfilling and enjoyable for everyone. Yeah, it's definitely something I try to do when I play. But something I try to kind of facilitate as a DM too, like making sure that everybody gets a say. And if they don't really care, you know, if they prefer to just sit back and let everybody else kind of drive the ship, so to speak, then, you know, that's fine too, so long as we've all yeah. kind of set that as an expectation. But yeah, I, I like that. Um, I think it's important to try to make sure that everybody has a voice and is, is included mm -hmm. in that kind of stuff. Now, a word from How Not to DM's sponsors. First up, let's start with a word from my friends way out in New Zealand, Dice Legends. Amidst the wreckage and recovery from war, a new secret war begins in the alleys, docks, gambling pits, and sewers of Aratai. A war of assassins, smugglers, crime lords for the underbelly of the city. Caught in this struggle, a bounty hunter and a thief for hire find themselves entrusted with the protection and life of a very special child. This is a story 
from the shadows of Aratai. Premieres November 12th on Dice Legends. The Shadows of Aratai is coming out very soon. It's going to be a five-part stream on Dice Legends stream, so check the episode notes for the link to their Twitch channel. Go ahead and follow it and make sure that you don't miss it. And if you do miss their live streams, then you can always watch their videos on demand later. Next up is a word from my friends at Two Weeks One Shot. That's Two's cast. Uh, Two Weeks One Shot have been really good friends of mine. I had one of their members of their podcast, Brian, on my show a while back, if you remember. Also, I'm going to drop this sneak peek here. I actually got invited onto their show as a Halloween guest. So check out their Halloween one shot. It was super fun. I went with the most ridiculous character I could think of in true Two's cast fashion. So here's a quick promo for Two's cast. They are a podcast that play a different system for every one shot and usually do like two to five ish episodes for each system. So great way to learn new systems and have a ton of laughs along the way. Without further ado, here's Two's cast. Hey, everybody, we're the hosts of Two Weeks, One Shot, a tabletop RPG variety podcast. We play one-shot campaigns in a variety of systems. With a variety of guests from all around the TTRPG scene. And obviously, I bring a certain je ne sais quoi to every performance. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Two Weeks, One Shot. Are we ever going to have a serious discussion about playing furry pirates? No, 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 no matter what holiday you celebrate, they have an advent calendar for it. They have ones of different sizes for different numbers of days for different budgets. So go check that out and find a perfect gift for the tabletop gamer in your life for the holiday season. If you use the code HN, the number two DM on checkout, that's HN2DM, five characters, you can get 10% off your order and you can help support the show because I get a little percentage of your purchases as well. So go check that out. Make your orders for the holiday season through Adventure Dice. That's adventuredice.ca and help support How Not to DM while you're at it. And finally, podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Are you a podcast or video content creator who wishes you spent more time creating the content you love and less time doing the boring editing that bogs you down? Check out podcasteditors.online or videoeditors.online. See all of their awesome rates and offerings for editing content. Buy a few hours of editing a la carte or buy their bulk plans if you have more content that you need created. Check out the links in the episode notes for more information about both podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. And now let's get back to the second half of the show, starting off with Quickfire Chaos. This week on Quickfire Chaos, Anthony and I are going to roll on some random D100 tables from the internet to create a scenario to roleplay. First of all, we start with the NPC voice, not accent, but like how they sound. Okay. I got a 95. Very obviously trying to sound smarter than they are. 
So that'll be fun. Uh, okay, uh, a personality trait for the NPC here. Okay, 89. Reckless. Mm. Uh, heedless, headstrong, foolhardy, unthinking, boldness, wild, <laughs> carelessness, disregard for consequences. Okay. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Job that they have kind of to inform how you're going to role play them or, or where we might find them. All right. 87. Man, these are good rolls. Oh, wow. Have. These are I good. Keep, I'm burning my good rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Librarian. Okay. This is interesting. <laughs> then lastly, what sounds more interesting? Uh, fetch quest, city quest. Uh, I also have a hundred items in a shop, uh, just as like a random idea. Let's do a city quest. I guess a librarian would be in a city, right? Yeah, yeah, city quest. Okay. Okay. I got a forty-six. Um, the poorest and youngest citizens start to drown on dry land and in open places, skin soaked and slimy. There's an avaleth somewhere infecting the oldest, deepest well in the city. So you know this for some reason. And you're going to need some help with it. (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) That's crazy. Holy crap. (laughs) Okay. I will play a fighter who has shown up to town. She, I don't know if she's going to be much use in this situation, but you know, who cares? She's got some friends who know spells and stuff. Yeah. I'll play a fighter. She's got like two swords holsters behind her back. I'm walking around looking pretty self-assured um, looking for a fight kind of thing. So yeah, uh, you you can kind of like set the scene as the DM if you want, or we can just jump into into the role play straight away. But I'll let you uh, I'll let you lead away from here. Okay. So we'll say that you are entering Candlekeep. You've been beckoned by one of the avowed monks, specifically one called Little Timmy, who's well known. You don't know much about him. You heard that he's just a very odd character. And as you go through the emerald gates of Candlekeep into the inner courtyard there, you're escorted by some of the avowed. They, they bring you to this uh, dragon tower that has just lined with books. It's the carcass of a dragon that's hollowed out into this library structure. And when you go inside, you see this big, just huge, large creature. It's an ogre wearing robes. And they have this little crown on their head, like a headband. Obviously, as an adventurer... You would recognize that it, it looks like a headband of intellect, but it's clearly <laughs> not. It's like broken and janky, you know? And he okay. turns around. He goes, hello there. It's little Timmy the librarian here. I am the smartest ogre that ever was. My mom's tears passed down this little thing for generations, making me a smart old boy. Welcome to Candlekeep. Uh <laughs> Well, thank you for your warm welcome. I was summoned here by you. Uh, it appears that you have a task for me to complete, and uh, I would love to know what I can do to help you with it. I would say more of an errand. I wouldn't use the word task. It's beneath me. Uh, uh, perhaps a vessel of opportunity. Uh, let's see. A spark of enlightenment, perhaps. But uh, uh, no. you know what I'm saying, don't you? Correct? Yes. Uh, I think, uh, I, you know, I've been to five colleges, kicked out of all of them, but nonetheless, I think I have a degree there. Um, so come closer. I got to whisper this to you. All right. I, I lean in a little bit. And he, he starts to get louder. There's people drowning all over the place. Little baby boys and girls, old mumses, 
It, I think there's something go. I think the old people and the younger people, they cannot swim. But I have deciphered this is on dry land. Mm. They, they're you? drowning on dry land. Yes, yeah, like a fish would. Do fish drown? I think they do on land. Yeah, if we go in the water and we drown, then they must come out of the water. They drown. So I think, I just think. <laughs> Makes sense. This might be connected to the seafood cart that's been selling those rotten fishes here in Candlekeep. You get a fish, you see, think about it. You eat a fish, and maybe you become a fish. And that's why they're drowning. I don't, I keep telling the high master this hypothesis. He doesn't believe me. He asked me to get an adventure to look into it. And, and I am who you have summoned. Yes, of course. The other ten didn't want to do nothing about it. Uh, had they worked with you before, perhaps? Uh, well, they were old friends, and they ended up drowning too. It was horrible. Oh. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and then well. They went to the Young Adventures Guild, and they started drowning too. So I had to find someone in the middle. Yeah. Uh, I don't know a lot about magic, but I know people who do. Uh, I think I can run this errand for you then. I will an opportunity. Yes, a spark of enlightenment, I believe you said. Uh, right I on. will I will find some people who can help me figure out why these poor people are drowning on dry land just like fish and see what the root of it all is. I think I think you are uh Well the sea is normally at the bottom of the you said see what the root of it is, but you can't because the roots don't grow in the sea. You're you should right. know this. I should know this. This is common knowledge. <laughs> You're <laughs> right. Little Timmy, uh, I will find out why they are drowning. Roger. Sounds like a good plan. Uh, of course, uh, I would like to know what you have in mind for payment for this errand. Oh, I think uh, you can have a book or two. And uh, matter of fact, I will get you the headmaster's private book. Don't tell him about it. It's got a lot of secrets, but I don't care because little Timmy needs to get the job done. That's what he said. Do it, little Timmy. Get the job done for once, little Timmy. Stop talking to me. And that's what he said. So I'm doing just that. It, it's, it makes total sense to me. Uh, I will be back soon with uh, information that we collect. Good. I'll be right here looking at my mom's stew, putting a recipe in the books or two. And then calligraphy all over the place. Excellent. I can't wait to see your work, what, what you get done while we're away. Yeah. <laughs> well, little Timmy. Yeah, don't tell the headmaster about this little book deal that we have, right? Right? They're called the Book of Secrets. Yeah. Yeah. Just just <laughs> you know, uh, don't 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 mention that The to Book him. of Dark uh, Magic Secrets. Don't worry. What? I'll let that thing fly right into the world. Nothing bad can happen. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure nothing bad will. Excellent. Well, I will see you soon, little Timmy. <laughs> he waves and goes back to his work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love it. That was an excellent choice. Well done. Well done. Oh, boy. Bad things are about to happen. Transitioning now into uh, your work in the tabletop industry. You are a prolific author of D&D and TTRPG content. How did you decide to make the jump from running games and perhaps, you know, homebrewing and that kind of thing to, yeah, deciding you want to start publishing stuff? 
So this is a funny story. So it came down to Dorvin Forge. Are you familiar with Dorvin Forge? I know of it. Yeah, I've never used it, but yeah. So the terrain is very nice. It's really beautiful, like stuff you can use on your table. And I wanted to buy some, but it's very expensive. And so I was looking online and I remember this website, the DMs Guild, Dungeon Masters Guild. And I saw like you could write and publish stuff there and make a little bit of money. And I'm like, I went to my wife, Jen. And I'm like, hey, look, I want to buy this Dorvin Forge. She had known I wanted to buy. She's like, what's well, a lot of money? I'm like, look, I can start writing this stuff for D&D and then I could sell it. And then I'll use that money to buy my Dorvin Forge or like my D&D hobby stuff. She's like, whatever, you know, sure, go ahead and, and do that. So I took some money and I started, you know, writing and getting art and, and made the Air of Orcus. And I really like enjoyed like that creative outlet process. Like I just, I loved it. And I published it and I did well. Like it was selling and I really found that fun and, and getting involved in the community on Twitter and on Discord and meeting everybody. And I never bought any Dorvin Forge. I just kept like <laughs> using the money to go to the next project, you know, so, like the yes. art budget or hiring editors or, or whatever. And so um, I just fell in love with the process of creating, but mainly also working with a team. So I think from my military background, we're very team oriented and we understand that no one individual is going to be successful. It takes like a group of people with very specific skills. So in TTRPGs, you need an editor, a graphic designer, you need a writer, you need a project manager, you need all these layout things. And, and yeah, and layout and, play and art orders. And, yep. Oh, that, man. The whole shebang. So I think my military background like really complemented the creative process. And I'm organized, I'm able to lead teams and, and work with people. And we just started knocking out project after project after project. And I met a lot of my great friends through that process. And I'm very thankful to have met them and worked with them and learned from them. And yeah, so that's what keeps me going is like, I just enjoy creating cool stuff. I'm very happy that like all of my projects, I, I pay my collaborators uh, very well if they're not getting a royalty share from me, like they're getting a, a, a if they're getting a flat rate, they're getting like really, I'll say like editors are getting like eight cents a word, uh, writers are, you know, 20 cents a word. These are great rates that I, you know, have been able to give back to the community and said, hey, I've been successful. I'm paying it forward. Like I'm bringing in other uh, creatives and I'm trying to talk about increasing rates for creatives and I'm helping do that. And then uh, if I work on a project with royalty splits, like I structure it so that they are guaranteed to make a certain amount that's pretty good. Uh, I'll, I'll tell them, hey, if the royalty rate does not meet the uh, minimum industry rate. So for example, if you're a writer and you don't make 10 cents per word off your work from my royalty share that I gave you within six months, I will pay you that. So you will get the 10 cents and keep the royalty share on top of that. So I guarantee these things. I'm lucky to be able to do that because I've had a successful time in the industry and I think that's part of like sharing that success and, and investing in other people too is very important because that's how we get newer people to come into the industry and start creating because we need artists to get paid well. We need editors to get paid well. And um, I make it a point to kind of help grow the space, grow the community and, and really try to mentor people uh, to, to become creatives and be successful because I think we need to do that to make sure that this hobby of ours continues to grow and thrive and flourish yeah definitely uh like i said I, i've been working on a project with my friend and we're kind of like trying to do 
I mean, we've outsourced like art and stuff, but we're trying to do everything else ourselves. And it's a ton of work and it definitely deserves um, to be paid. You know, like the, the amount of work that goes into any publication, even if it's really small, is, is incredible. So it's definitely given me a healthy appreciation for the amount of work that goes into publishing like a whole module, you know, for, for D&D or, or even even like smaller adventures. Yeah. Yeah. How do you find people to collaborate with on your projects and what is kind of your criteria whether unofficial or not or for people that you work with there's a few things i specifically work a lot with poc creators in in terms of mentoring them there's a few that i mentor actively that i take time to one-on-one like meet with 45 minutes to an hour every few weeks and things like that i think it's important i was fortunate enough to be brought in by ajit george uh, who led radiant citadel yeah, yeah. And get some mentorship. And that's kind of like my way of paying it forward is, you know, teaching POC creators kind of like the craft of design and stuff like that and helping them get opportunities. In terms of my criteria, I've worked a lot with just a vast array of creators. I'm on Twitter a lot. So that's where I meet a lot of the creators I identify. I see, okay, who is kind of has some cool uh, ideas, who's also seems good to work with because I've seen people that are extremely talented, creative people, but they are just, they seem like they may not be good to work with in a team setting. So I cannot work with that type of person. Uh, And that's okay because sometimes those people like to work solo and that's okay too. So, but I know again, from my military mindset, I'm very good at building teams. And so I look at who can complement the skill sets we're lacking in a certain project and how do we get them? So I've worked with, you know, Sadie Lowry a lot, uh, Laura Hurstburner, Gordon McAlpin, uh, Justice and I were, you know, working a lot of projects together and many others, uh, Amber Lickey and Bianca Bickford. So I, I could go on with the names, but right. these are, I look beyond the, the hype because there's a lot of people to that. They get hyped up and, and, and I, I kind of have to sift through, okay, let me look at their work that's published and then I'll analyze that. And then I'll also talk to them and get to know them a little bit. And this is for people that I want them to hear this that are out there, like trying to get into the industry. Like I do ask other people that know them or have worked with them. Mm, like what kind are of you references? Rec- yeah. Do you recommend this person or not? And um, in our community, like I get asked those questions all the time. You also have to have a good reputation. So you can't just like work on a project and then like ghost it and then think you're going to be good. I mean, if there's real life circumstances, you always want to like, you know, communicate that to the project lead so they can accommodate that. But don't just leave someone high and dry because people will will talk. And so like there's been times where I ask, hey, this person seems really great. What are your thoughts? And someone's like, hey, they've ghosted, you know, three projects, missed a deadline on five and they turned into their work on one and it required tons of revamping editing. So, you know, no. And then you're like, oh, wow, that, well, that's a shame. And then that's a no go. And then others are, that are less visible on social media, maybe they're extremely talented and they're hungry and they want to work. They meet deadlines and they're communicative. Those are kind of like the people I kind of look for. I think what I'll say at the end of the day is this for any designer out there on all the projects I've led, I'm very flexible with like deadlines and and most project managers are. And I've talked to a lot of project managers. And when I say I talk to them, I'm talking to people at WOTC, people at MCDM, people at Critical Role and Ghostfire Gaming. Project leads, this is like the truth is if you tell them, hey, I'm going to need a few extra weeks or something because I'm just overstressed. Maybe I, you know, I need a mental break or whatever the reason. 
if you communicate that, I have never seen where they are up. Oh, screw you. You suck. No, they accommodate that. Cause as human beings, like we all understand we're making D and D stuff. Like my deadlines can shift for your mental health. If that's what's required. Yeah. And we can accommodate that because we're human beings and we should be empathetic. So like, don't be afraid to voice that up front because even if the deadline's so tight where they have to say, Hey, we can't accommodate that, but I'll, let me get another designer to help step in and work with you to kind of like take the baton. That's a hundred times better. And no one will ever say anything ill of that. And so I want people to understand because I've seen a lot of talented people get great opportunities because a big opportunity will come to you if you stay in the industry. And when you get that big opportunity, designing is not easy. As you've said, you know, Derek, like designing and creating a thing is not easy. No. So <laughs> when you get that opportunity, if you don't treat it like a golden egg and you drop the ball, it could be even one time. It could have repercussions down the road from yeah. there. So uh, just kind of like a little tidbit that I would like to share with everybody is, is that. Yeah, that's really good information, really valuable. I, I love that advice, though. And I like that you said you know, people aren't going to like, unless they're really terrible bosses or project leads, they're going to be understanding with, you know, real life stuff that comes up. Uh, For instance, you and I were going to record last week, but you know, just kids and and schedules and stuff. And like, it's easy to say, Hey, we'll put it off till next week. You know, this is like not life or death situation. This is just for fun. (laughs) Yeah. I love that answer. All right. Do you feel like your military experience knack for strategy, that kind of thing, played into your love for tabletop games, MMORPGs, et cetera? Or, you know, is it just kind of like part of your personality? Uh, you know, a chicken and egg situation, which came first? I think it's a part of my personality. So for the military strategist, uh, so I am a strategist. That's like my my title. It's functional mm-hmm. area 59, if you want to get really specific and look it up. But it's a newer thing. So it's been around about 10 years. There's only about 400 of us in the entire army. And what it is, is if you think about the American military, like we weren't doing good, right? In the world, (laughs) the war on terror, like 20 years, I wouldn't say is the success of what happened. And and so here we are, here we find ourselves. And so the strategist role is to have like divergent thinkers propose like really out of the box thinking or solutions to things. And so that's my role in the military is is to look at the most difficult problems and come at it from a different way than, than it's normally approached and to provide senior leaders solutions to that. So why More than is that carrot or stick, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, all the nuance and everything. So, so why yeah. does that mesh with what I do in D and D? Because that's creative thought. You got to be very creative in how you approach things. So even in the design world, you have to be creative in how do I make a complex situation for players to engage with? How do I make a rich world? How do I present political intrigue? How do I present more than just black and white problem sets? So I think for me, the strategy training and the like experience and expertise I have from the military translates very directly into a creative role because my whole mindset is thinking about bigger problems and how to present them, but in a digestible way while also being a little bit out of the box. And so that's why I think the products that I make they kind of go over well because they're common. People understand them, but they are they have twists and they're different enough where they they shine in their own regard in that way. And then, you know, I mentioned it with the uh, collaboration piece about the team building and team working. So I think that also fits well 
into that because in the military we have to work as as a team and in D&D or in tabletop design you have to work in a team and the leg up that I think I get is creative minded individuals sometimes lack like the organizational part of things like the project management side so sometimes you have like a very talented writer but they need that like strong project lead to kind of couple them uh, I'm fortunate where I think I've been I'm a very creative person, but through the military, I've been like given that organizational, like structured mindset. So my personality, very creative. You know, I have ADHD. I'm not a, I'm not an organized person. I, got, like, I don't have a planner at home or <laughs> and stuff like that. So I think the military like forced me to be in this other way, kind of like it took a weakness I had and like strengthened it. And so when I bring that to tabletop design now through my military training, it's like strengthened my creative process for the better. So I think it's been very important to my process. Mm, interesting. All right. We did cover a lot of your advice for designers and stuff as far as like work ethic and, you know, um, taking the opportunities that are given to you. But what other advice do you have to designers and writers out there that either you were given or that you've kind of learned about doing your best work, maintaining momentum, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah. So there's two ways to look at this. Are you going to be a designer that self-publishes or you, do you want to be like a freelancer that works for, you know, MCDM or Wizards of the Coast or whatever? Or do you want to be like a hybrid? So I w- I'm a hybrid. Right. I came in self-publishing, but I do a lot of freelancing now as well. And there's benefits to both. I would say most people are going to come in as a self-publishing route. I have seen a few people that come out of the gate with no experience get a freelancing opportunity. And the thing I would caution about that is unless you have like an English degree from a university as you know, and you're a very talented writer off the bat, you may get the opportunity and kind of like fumble it. And then that could have repercussions. So I caution people like, Hey, if you get this great opportunity, you, you just have to go in understanding that design work is immensely hard. And I say this as, as a military guy, like I, I do hard work in the military. So I know what hard work is design is very hard mentally. Okay. It's not easy. So so my recommendation is always self-publish so you understand at least the process of like what you need to have an editor. Oh, okay. My words need to look a certain way. There's a format, there's a template. So maybe even one time or two times try to like self-publish before you go fishing for a freelance gig, but self-publish. And if you become a freelancer, the best thing I could say is just be good. And what I, and what I mean is you don't have to be the next prolific author of the world and think you're going to write something that's going to blow everybody's mind. It's going to get a Netflix movie deal. I see so many writers, they get this big opportunity to write for a big company. And they're like, they're just so nervous. And they're like, I got to write the best thing ever. And they kind of psych themselves out and they kind of lead Mm. themselves to failure. All people want that hire you is just good. I want a good thing. That's an adventure that has a structure, a three act structure, an opening, a middle and an end. And that's it. I want it delivered on time. And that's it. Like these things don't have to be mind blowing, you know, narratives that are going to change the world. They just got to be good or okay even. So that's what I would tell people. I've seen a lot of people fumble is if you are a okay designer and you meet deadlines, wow, you're going to go far. And I'm not kidding. Like you will go far. (laughs) These companies that hire you, they're not looking for the next big thing. They just want, hey, I want an adventure. I want it on time. And that's it. Boom. You deliver that and they're going to be like, wow, A plus. And then you think that's 
it sounds kind of wild, but that's like the truth behind the curtain. If I give you a peek, it's that simple. On time and good enough. And that's it. You'll be a rock star. So anybody can do it. It just takes a little bit of discipline and don't let perfection be the enemy of good kind of deal. Mm, I love that yeah. quote. Yeah, that, yeah. That's what I was thinking of kind of the whole time you're you're talking about the yeah. make sure it's, it's good enough kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Excellent advice. And good for me to hear too. I do sometimes get stuck on like, you know, is this good enough? And I probably spend too much time working on it, right? So <laughs> what are your parting words of encouragement and wisdom finally to dungeon masters, game masters, people running games? I learned this lesson before I was DMing. Uh, so the army had me become an ROTC instructor. So I had to teach the kids at college who were in ROTC how to become officers, right? And I, I was kind of intimidated because uh, I had to teach him like infantry tactics. I'm not an infantry guy. And I was always like, oh, I'm not an infantry guy. Like I got to teach him all these squad tactics and maneuvers and stuff. And I quickly realized this little trick and it's beautiful. When you're a dungeon master or you're in a position where you're relaying information, the people on the other side, they have zero idea of what the information is supposed to be. So whatever you tell them is the truth. And the only person who doesn't, who knows that it's not the truth is you. So if you can fake it, believe it or not, even if you're like lack the confidence, if you simply fake the confidence, it is real and it's real to them and you'll be an amazing success for it. So that's as simple as that. Fake the funk is what I say. If you don't have it, fake the funk. <laughs> They'll love it. So uh, just a little tidbit. <laughs> Uh, has anybody ever called you out and been like, all that stuff you taught us was just garbage? <laughs> so let me, let me, <laughs> so I will say, look, uh, you know, that, yeah, know the material to some extent, but right. like, uh, in a narrative sense with like a story aspect, like, you know, no one knows the world or what will happen. And here's a good thing, right? If you're, um, worried about the rules, that's okay. Like if there's a rules lawyer person at your table that knows every rule, like use them, you know? Uh, and that's a good te- teaching technique. If someone says, hey, that's not the rule, say, so what is the rule? And they say, ah, I see it. Yep. See, I, told- I knew it. Yep. And let's go with that. <laughs> just make the fuck, you know, use the teaching moment and let them feel good about it. Like, oh, yeah, that was, that was the test I did. You know, like, hey, sir, that's all I, I, I know, but I want you like, to, right. to tell me that, that you know. See, yeah, that's, that's when I turned to like, you see, that's why Cadet Smith is uh, top of the class. You see, they caught my little trap. They're the only ones who did the readings last night. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that is good advice though. I, I totally see what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to say you're an incompetent teacher. I just, <laughs> it's just, I just wondered if, if it ever came up. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, for timeline purposes, this is coming yeah. out in a couple months probably. So I don't know if you know that far in advance, but as far as like what you're working on, what might be coming out, but anyway, you, I see okay, you couple, made some bullet points. Yeah. Here, so what I have coming out December of this year one of the fables for the Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse by uh, Ghostfire Gaming. It is the capstone adventure for that fable series. So that is, if you haven't subscribed to Ghostfire's Gaming's fables, what it is, it's like a Netflix subscription. It's a six-month like campaign, and every month a episode comes out, and it's about, you know, you could play like an adventure a week, so it's like four little adventures in that episode. And then after the six months, they start a whole new campaign with a whole new setting and a whole new storyline. So if you're into that, that's uh, Ghostfire Gaming. It's what I have coming out for them. I do have another project that I've been working on 
that I can't speak about, but you got a few things in the works. So there'll be a good time. So I'm continuing to make adventures mainly and putting them out either self-publishing on the guild or working with like Ghostfire Gaming and other companies out there. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Is Ghostfire the one that did the Dungeons of Drakenheim stuff with the Dungeon Dudes? I think it is. Grim Hollow. That's their other setting. Yeah, Grim Hollow. Then this fable, the Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, is its own setting. It's like a um, pirates in a, I don't want to say Spelljammer, because it's not. It's a little bit different. It's like if an actual ocean was kind of in space. So it's a little bit different than Spelljammer, but it's really fun and cool. Cool. Uh, Where can people find your work, find you, interact with you online? I have all my work on my website, uh, anthonydreams.com. And then if you want to talk to me, chat me up, you can find me on Twitter at ajoyce underscore Rivera. I'm also on TikTok at the same username. And I do funny stuff on TikTok there. Uh, So I'm on both platforms. You can find me on either. I remember you tweeting a few weeks ago about trying to figure out TikTok. So hopefully you've been more successful than me. Uh, I don't think people care about podcasts on there, but I've been trying a little bit. So yeah. (laughs) I will say this just because it may help other creators out there. TikTok is interesting because it seems that it wants the content to be the video itself. And the algorithm picks up any calls to action to like, listen to my podcast. It'll like pick that up and it'll suppress it and crush it. And, you know, or buy my adventure, it'll crush it because it doesn't want that. It just wants to know like, I want people to watch your video and laugh and stay on TikTok. And so keep scrolling. Yeah. Just like uh, Twitter doesn't like you linking to other sites or that kind of thing. Same thing. Yeah. Those Ah, grimy social media platforms. (laughs) Yeah. Why do they make it so hard? Oh, man. Cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me, Anthony. It's been a ton of fun. been great to get to know you a little bit more and and see from your perspective what it's like designing games and kind of hear your advice for people, too. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'll catch you soon, hopefully. So take care. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Dragna Carta, well-known Curse of Strahd DM and DM of the Twice Bitten podcast. I'm ready for this to be an all-out brawl. And then the players start being eminently reasonable. <laughs> and I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm just flying in blind here. And I'm like, I, I prepped combat. You know, I maybe it makes sense for the NPC, but it, it's not going to work. She, she needs to shut them down. I, I cannot let this go because I don't know where the story will go. To hear more of Dragna's Strahd shenanigans, his foray into fixing 5e's challenge rating, and more, tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with your friends and family who play TTRPGs as well. New reviews will be read out at the end of the episode as a thank you. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios, The Dragon, for help editing and producing this episode. As a reminder, if you are a content creator, either podcast or video, check out videoeditors.online or podcasteditors.online, as it's the same team who helps produce this show as runs those websites. Last time I'm going to bug you about it for today, my Kickstarter is live, Two Hot One Shot. The episode notes has the link. My Twitter account will have the link. Uh, the link will be in my link tree. So any way you can find the link, it would mean a ton to me if you would support it. Throw a few bucks at it, and it will help us continue to try to make cool stuff. My friend Matthew and my friend Jordan and I put a ton of work into it. We worked on it all summer, and we'd really appreciate it if you would help us make this dream a reality. All right, let's get to the last few thank yous here. 
My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Xcat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nad20s for me.